0: In around 380 AD, a British monk, said to be stuffed with Scottish porridge, arrived in Rome. About 60 years earlier, Constantine's Edict of Milan had granted religious freedom to Christians. And as a result, there was a big increase in nominal Christianity, and along with it, a lot of immorality in the church. And what our monk, Pelagius, saw appalled him and he set out on a single-handed campaign to improve the moral standing of the church. But Pelagius felt that his job was made so much more difficult by the teaching of his peer, Augustine. After all, who's going to live a moral life if they're being offered free grace? Pelagius countered it with his own teaching. He taught that after um. We are completely free to please God and to attain our own salvation, that Adam's sin affected nobody but Adam, and that all we need to live the perfect life is the law and Christ's good example. This brought him into conflict with Augustine, who wrote many works against him, and he reiterated the biblical understanding that following Adam's sin, mankind is unable not to sin And in order to be delivered from this, God must intervene by grace, which is completely effective, it's free, and it's irresistible. The church was forced to adjudicate and came down in favor of Augustine. He was teaching biblical Christianity, and Pelagius was teaching heresy. Unfortunately, neither Augustine nor the church were terribly clear on how that free grace actually led to our salvation. And consequently, over the next millennium, a degree of Pelagianism crept back into the church. This idea that our salvation is a joint enterprise between ourselves and God. This is what Pope Gregory the Great said. Sins after baptism must be satisfied. Works of merit wrought by God's assisting grace make satisfaction. The good we do is both of God and of ourselves of God by prevenient, I had to look that up, initial grace, and our own goodwill following. Partly God, partly us. Thomas Aquinas said, Christ's passion, that's his death, works its effects in them them to whom it is applied through faith and charity and the sacraments of the faith. So the medieval picture of a church was a bit like a hospital where you would go along and get your infusion of grace. And as you got your infusion of grace, you became more righteous, and eventually you would be sufficiently righteous to be justified. And this was the framework of thinking that Martin Luther had to enter into when he became a monk at the age of 21. And he was utterly miserable. Because he read Scripture and he understood that God was a just God, and by that, he understood that he justly condemned simmers. And when he read of Christ's righteousness, that was nothing to be rejoiced in. That was simply another standard which he was never going to attain. And Luther tried. He followed the rule of the order. He frequently went without food and blankets. He spent up to six hours in confession. And after one such session, it is reputedly said that his confessor, Stoupit said to him, Look here, Brother Martin, if you're going to confess so much, why don't you do something worth confessing? (laughs) Kill your mother or father. (laughs) Commit adultery. Stop coming in here with such thummery and fake sins." But Luther was really fortunate in Staupitz because Staupitz believed in the old Augustinian exhortation that you should read scriptures eagerly, you should hear them devotedly, and you should learn them zealously. And Staupitz was also involved in the setting up of the university at Wittenberg. And there, the first statute of that university was the highest authority in matters of faith is the Bible. Stuypid saw how utterly miserable Luther was and encouraged him to take up a post in the university, and he fast-tracked him through. And as Luther was in the university, he was forced to go back to Scripture, and he also started reading the works of Augustine. In fact, in his own words, he said he devoured them. And as he did so, he came to a fresh understanding of God and sin and man and grace. As you know, the spark for the Reformation was in 1517 with the sale of indulgences. So after confessing your sins, you get absolution and you have to do penance. But instead of doing penance, you can pay money to the church. And then out of their enormous merit that is out there, you can have your penance done for you. The seal of penance, or indulgences, in the Wittenberg area was handed over to a slippery character by the name of uh, Johannes Tetzel. And Tetzel overstated even the church's teaching on indulgences. Not only could you escape paying for them for yourself, but your mum and dad up in purgatory, not very nice, you can get them out too. What Luther heard appalled him and forced him 500 years and one month ago to post his 95 theses on the church at Wittenberg. His theology was by no means fully formed at this stage. He didn't argue against purgatory. He didn't argue against papal authority. But he did argue against indulgences. And as he was forced to defend himself, he had to go back to scripture. And over the next two years, between 1517 and 1519, he came to a very clear understanding of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The exact date of his so-called "tar" experience, in which he realized that just will live by faith, is under a little bit of debate. He seems to date it as late as 1519. But Luther came to the understanding that righteousness is not something that is infused into you, but something that is given to you. He changed the picture, from a hospital where you got infusions of grace into a courtroom where a judge imputed grace to you when he justified you. So what did the reformers mean when they said Christ alone? Let me give you three quotations. This is the first one from Martin Luther in a letter back to Stupitz. I teach that people should put their trust in nothing but Jesus Christ alone, not in their prayers, merits. Are their own good deeds. And two from Zwingli. Through Christ alone, we are given salvation, blessedness, grace, pardon, and all that makes us in any way worthy in the sight of a righteous God. And again from Zwingli. As Christ alone died for us, so he is also to be adored as the only mediator and advocate between God, the Father, and the believers Therefore, it is contrary to the word of God to propose and invoke other mediators. Christ alone means at least a couple of things. Christ is a sufficient sacrifice. Christ is the only mediator. So what's the relevance 500 years later? Well, our dispute with the Catholic Church, even after the 1999 Joint Declaration on Justification between Lutherans and Catholics, remains the same. In their catechism, they say no one can merit the initial forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion, but moved by the Holy Spirit and charity, we can then merit for ourselves the grace's need for sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. But our problem is so much bigger than that nowadays. Christ alone, that's not something that goes down well in society as a whole. We live in a postmodern society where any claim to absolute truth is treated with skepticism or derision. We live in a pluralist society, so many different religions. How could you be so arrogant as to say Christ alone, the only way to God? That is so intolerant. And of course, intolerance is the one remaining sin in society. But well, there's also a challenge to Christ alone, sufficient sacrifice. And that comes from liberal Christianity and from some even in the evangelical fold who have moved away because of the stumbling block of the cross. The idea that Christ should be a sacrifice, that's appalling theology. That's child abuse. So the relevance of Christ alone remains today. All that by way of exceedingly long introduction, we're gonna turn to God's word. And it's in Hebrews chapter nine, we're gonna start at verse 24. And as we do in winter, uh, it's gonna be on the screen as well. Uh, We'll stand for the public reading of God's word. Let's stand. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, that was only a copy of the true one, He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared, once for all, at the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Grab a seat. Keep your Bibles open. As you read through the verses, I don't know if you noticed, but the word appear occurs three different times. And it occurs on each occasion in a different tense. And they all refer to the appearances of Christ. So in verse 24, we're told that Christ appears in heaven. In verse 26, that he has appeared at the culmination of the ages. And in verse 28, that he will appear again. And the second thing to note is, with each of these appearances, he does something. And that something is for us. So in verse 24... appears in heaven for us now. In verse 26, he appeared to take away sin. And in verse 28, he's going to come again to bring us salvation. So this is all about what God does for us. It's not about what we do for him, or indeed what a combination of God and ourselves do for us, if you know what I mean. So what we're going to do is we want to take them in chronological order, not the order they appear in the text. And just to warn you, the first one takes a good bit longer than the other, so don't be panicking about clay. Verse 26. He has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. We're entering a season of Advent when we remember Christ's appearing. This was not Christ's beginning. He is the eternal word of God, but this was his first appearing And nowhere is that put more majestically than in the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory. This was the first appearing of Christ. So, what did he achieve? Well, verse 26. He came to do away with sin. How did he achieve that? Verse 26. By the sacrifice of himself. So, can we get from this verse to the reformer's cry of Christ alone, sufficient sacrifice? Well, I think we can if we take this verse in the context of the chapter as a whole. You see, Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were under persecution and were in danger of slipping back to Judaism. And the writer is writing to say, Why would you do that? why would you go back to Judaism when you have something that is so much better in Christ? And the word better creeps up again and again in Hebrews. Christ's a better messenger. He's the head of a better covenant. He's a better high priest. And here, he's a better sacrifice. So in what way is he a better sacrifice and then then possibly sufficient sacrifice? Well, to do that, we have to Look at the Old Testament sacrificial system. And that's what's described in the first half of Hebrews chapter 9, the bit we didn't read. And here they describe the Old Covenant system, which was really based around a tabernacle or later in a temple. And there was an outer courtyard where any Jew could come and bring their offerings and their sacrifices. And there was an altar of burnt offering there. Beyond that was a holy place where only the priests could go. And they would go in and out every day and do their duty. But beyond that, again, was the most holy place, behind a thick curtain, where God's presence was. And only one person could go in there, and that was the high priest. And only once a year, on the Day of Atonement. And only after he had sacrificed a bullock for his own sin, and a goat for the sins of the people. And had he not done that precisely, he would not have come out. So you can imagine, on the Day of Atonement, the Israelites gathered round, They watch the sacrifice. He goes into the most holy place. Is he going to come out again? Are we okay for another year? So what did that tell us about the Old Testament sacrificial system? Well, the first thing it tells us is that it wasn't a permanent solution for sin. If it was a permanent solution for sin, you wouldn't be going back year on year. If anything, it's simply a reminder that their sins hadn't been covered. It was not a permanent solution for sin. But it's actually worse than that because the writer here tells us it wasn't even a temporary solution for sin. Verse 9, the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 15, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. It's all about outwardness, outward appearances. It's not about dealing with sin in the heart. It's much more explicit in the next chapter. Chapter 10, verse 10 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to do away with sin. And how could you think otherwise? How could you think that your thoughts of anger and lust and envy and pride and whatever else is in there you don't want to know, other people to know about could possibly be dealt with? by the death of an animal. So how is Christ's sacrifice better, maybe sufficient? Well, firstly, it actually deals with sin. Verse 12, we're told that it provides eternal redemption. Verse 14, it cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death. And verse 15, it sets us free from sin. It deals with sin. But it's better than that. It deals with sin permanently. But when this high priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. The work's done, he's seated. All sins are covered. Even, we're told in verse 15, the sins that have been committed under the old covenant. It never has to be repeated by one sacrifice He is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. The idea is captured brilliantly by Isaac Watts in his hymn. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name, and richer blood than they. Christ alone, sufficient sacrifice. But before we move on, I want to make one other point. I want you to notice the amount of religious effort that was being put in by these worshipers. It was phenomenal. They carried out the requirements laid out in Leviticus to the letter of the law. I don't think anyone in here does the same amount of religious practice that they do. Maybe I'm wrong. But the point is that it did not atone one iota for sins. That was all through what Christ did on the cross. Christ alone, sufficient sacrifice. Moving on, verse 24. He now appears in heaven for us. So we just heard that he has completed the work, he sat down at the right hand of God. So, what's he doing? He's interceding for us. Hebrews seven twenty-five. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That's what he's doing now. Revelation 12 tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuse them before God day and night. We have an accuser before God, but we have an advocate before God. And what does he plead before God for us? Not what we do, but what he's done. And throughout scripture, there is always that link between the person who does the atoning and the mediation. Romans 8, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The one who died for us is the one interceding for us. 1 John chapter 2, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Again, another hymn, brilliantly captures it, Charity Bancroft's. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me, My name is graven on his hands. My name is written in his heart. I know that while with God he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the sin, the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Christ is our intermediary. There is no need for any other intermediaries: the church, priests, Mary, the saints. Nor is there any rule for any other intermediaries. Other religions don't lead to God. We are utterly intolerant on that. But so too was Christ. No one comes to the Father, but by me. And Peter. There is no name given under heaven by by which you must be saved. And Paul, there's one God and one mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ alone, the only mediator. Third appearing, verse 28. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He's going to appear, again, he's going to appear to everybody. We know that elsewhere in Scripture, and every knee will bow. But here we're told that he's only going to appear for some people, for those who are eagerly awaiting him. You see, there's going to be a judgment. And that's made perfectly clear in the verse before, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And it was this judgment that so perturbed Luther. He knew that God was a just God and justly condemned sinners. But when he looked at Christ's righteousness, it wasn't something to be rejoiced in. It was something to be feared because he didn't live up to it. It was not until he realized that it was something that it was given to us that his joy was turned to heaven. But enough of my words. Let's listen to Luther's words.
1: I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God, because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. Thanks,
0: Richard. Luther understood the problem where the other monks just didn't get it that their righteousness could never uh, appease God, and that the only hope was from His righteousness given to them. That remains our only hope, not relying on what we do, but on what He has done. One last hymn to quote, and it's Edward Motes, my hope is built on nothing less. Than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And capturing that third appearance yet to come, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, in him my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Where's your hope tonight? In doing your best? Or is it in Christ alone?